Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of KISS Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is Dr. Jordan Zager. Jordan is an expert in natural product biosynthesis and chemical analysis of cannabis resin compounds. Dr. Zager earned his PhD from Washington State University, where his research set the stage for studying the regulatory events governing gene expression in cannabis and their effect on the biosynthesis of trichome-bound cannabinoids and terpenoids. Early in his career, Jordan set his sights on aggressively applying modern scientific methods to the medicinal and recreational cannabis industry and to bring cultivators the tools to become exceptional. Dr. Zager is now the CEO and co-founder of Dewey Scientific in Pullman, Washington. Now on to the show. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, Ted. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, let's start off talking a little bit about your background. Can you share a little bit about how you got into uh, this type of research? Yeah, so my, my you know formal educational background, um, I'm a biochemist who, who chose to study plant biochemistry. Um, I have a bachelor's of uh, biochemistry and molecular biology from the University of Nevada. Uh, while I was there, I worked in a plant biofuels lab where we were looking at a uh, potential crop for biodiesel production, um, specifically looking at the, the oil quality of the, the seeds produced by this, this crop. Um, <clears throat> and it was during that time, you know, as my college years, I found this love for biotechnology. Um, I was a college student smoking weed. Um, and sort of have this idea of let's let's merge these two things. Let's let's do some biotech in cannabis. Um, so that led me up to Washington State University um, in 2014. Um, recreational cannabis had just become legalized, and they had a market at that time. Um, and I found a lab that studied terpene biosynthesis in glandular trichomes. Um, so at the time, I knew enough about cannabis to know that that was very relevant. Um, and just to sort of back up, right. Glandular trichomes are these little tiny um, cellular chemical factories that stand on the leaf of plants. They're, they're found on about 30% of all plant species. Um, <clears throat> so the lab, the lab I entered for my doctorate um, studied the metabolism in those. And, and typically, uh, these, these structures, these trichomes, they make essential oil compounds, which for the most part are mono and sesquiterpenes. Um, and now those are famous in cannabis because they, they provide each variety or strain with their own unique aroma. And, you know, it's gaining traction that it's also the, these terpene compounds um, sort of influence the user experience for, from strain to strain. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how I got into all of this. Um, I eventually was able to work with cannabis uh, genomics as part of my Ph.D. Uh, dissertation. Um, and upon graduating uh, with my doctorate in plant biochemistry, um, <clears throat> went off and started Dewey Scientific, a cannabis-focused biotechnology company where we are trying to make cannabis better through, can uh, through credible science. And so that's what uh, you're doing now with Dewey Scientific? That's right. So, yeah, at Dewey Scientific, we are you know, implementing modern methods in 
plant breeding, right? Leveraging the, the genome as much as we can to identify markers that associate with certain traits and then make sure these traits get into the, the varieties that we develop and ultimately put onto the market, uh, both for other farmers to use. Uh, and we also have a commercial brand, Dewey Cannabis Company. We're located in Washington State, um, where we get to sort of market test the varieties that come out of our breeding program um, and get, you know, consumer feedback uh, directly. Um, that's what we're doing at Dewey. Great. Well, can you just touch briefly on, so what you're doing is, is breeding, not, you're not necessarily doing any, uh, GMO stuff at this point. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We, we are not um, directly putting genes from other organisms into cannabis. We are not, you know, using various viral or, or bacterial um, constructs to sort of manipulate cannabis genetics. All we are doing is, you know, sequencing the varieties we like, um, sequencing the genome of the varieties we like to sort of better understand what we have. Um, and then once, once we know what we have, we can start to make targeted and intelligent breeding decisions, right? If you think of the way that cannabis has been bred and treated um, over the last 40, 50 years through, through prohibition, right? Breeders have been very limited in their access to technology, their access to facilities. Um, <clears throat> and so it's sort of fallen behind other horticultural crops, right? If you look at blueberry, there's, there's a thousand papers on blueberry resistance to various pathogens, fungus, uh, insects. And because of the, the, prohibitor, the prohibitory nature of, of cannabis, we just hadn't, no one's really quite gotten there. So I think that's, that's, um, that's really what we're focused on is just catching it up to these other horticultural uh, species from an understanding and then you know, putting that understanding into practice through smart breeding. Yeah, I think that's a really good uh analogy that you're using there comparing it with vegetable crops that we're more familiar with because i know when i go out to buy say an apple tree i'm going to look for what diseases are most prevalent in my area and then look for a, a particular variety that i know is going to provide some resistance to that um, you know we have a lot of issues with rust around here for example with pears so i, I know that I, there's varieties i can choose that are going to be more resistant that i'm going to have a better crop um, and, and you know, uh, what you're getting in terms of a, a flavor profile too, and, and yield profile. So, uh, I think it's wonderful. So you're just identifying what, uh, particular markers may be most useful for someone. Um, and then by identifying, you can then breed plants that have these traits. Is that sort of what you're, what you're getting at there? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, without the, the gen genetic marker component of this, uh, the breeder is, is sort of left to uncovering things visually as the plant matures. Now, you know, cannabis is a relatively quickly maturing plant, you know, compared to, say, an apple tree. Um, so, you know, the, the time burden there, an eight-week flower cycle is, you know, relatively quick, but there's so much ground that we have to make up in cannabis that we need to be making decisions a lot quicker. And that's what genetic markers enable, right? So if we now have a genetic marker for say powdery mildew resistance. Um, and we want to make sure that this gets into all, all of our commercial varieties. Um, so at the seedling stage, we can just take a, a small little leaf sample, run a quick PCR um, 
assay and and then we know which in this population is powdery mildew resistant and then we can we can get rid of everything that doesn't have powdery mildew resistance and then and we're you know uh, at ease that all these varieties that we're growing and, and developing are are will be protected against powdery mildew so this is just another tool essentially utilizing technology to speed up the process because normally as a, traditionally as a breeder you'd have to grow out all these plants you then have to evaluate them you know qualitatively in terms of you know, terpenes and uh, the effects uh, of, you know, whatever, whatever effects that may synergistically occur with that particular plant, um, how resistant it is to different diseases that it may have been exposed to. And then you may choose to clone or reproduce it that way. But um, this just gives you a lot more information earlier on if you can identify these markers. And, and what you're saying is that we haven't we don't. We haven't identified all these markers, so we don't know where on the genome, you know, powdery mildew resistance, which is what we're going to talk about today, is is particular was located. Is that sort of what you're what you're saying there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're we're developing the 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 tools rooted in molecular biology to accelerate plant breeding. Um, <clears throat> exactly. Okay, well, let's let's dive into the paper. And I have to admit, um, you know, breeding is not <laughs> it's not my strength. It's not an area that I have a lot of knowledge in. So um, I'm probably going to be asking the types of questions to help uh, other listeners like myself that just haven't um, don't have anywhere near your academic background on this. But um, the paper itself, uh, I will have a link to directly in the podcast. Uh, it's called Discovery and Genetic Mapping of PM1, a Powdery Mildew Resistance Gene in Cannabis Sativa. And um, this was a paper produced by Dewey Scientific in conjunction with Oregon CBD. Um, and we'll have links directly to the paper. And uh, is there anything else you want to say on that before we dive into the paper? Yeah, you know, I just want to sort of make clear, you know, I'm, I'm not an author on this paper. Um, this was work performed by, by my company, Dewey Scientific, in collaboration with Oregon CBD, like you had mentioned. Uh, but I really just want to give a, a shout out to, to Paul Mahalov and Andrea Garfinkel, the, the two authors. Um, you know, th this was something that was a side project in, in terms of, you know, publishing a public access research paper. Um, you know, mo I think most companies, if they, they'd come across a marker like this, they'd seal their lips and it's only theirs. Um, but, you know, for, for us to advance the cannabis industry, we, we really want to be developing tools that anybody can use. Um, and, and Paul and Andrea just really took the, uh, the initiative on getting this work out there, putting it in the public domain, uh, because, you know, the cannabis industry is only going to advance if everybody can advance. And if, if you know, we're, we're holding this, you know, close to our chest, we're the only ones benefiting. And, um, you know, we're just not at that stage in cannabis where there should be a dominant market player. Um, so just... Yeah, wanted to to praise Paul and Andrea because this is really their 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 brainchild, but they they did a tremendous work here. I, I appreciate you uh, saying that, and I I 100% agree. I wasn't confident in pronouncing their last names, so thank you for uh, giving them a shout out for <laughs> for this work. Um, and and the fact that you are sharing this, I I think that is important, um, and something that I hope more companies will will do as we can so we can further our uh, overall knowledge. Um, I think that's definitely important. So, uh, yeah, let's let's dive into this paper. And again, this is open access, so you can read the paper yourself. Um, we'll have a link on the podcast page. Uh, but let's just start off talking a little bit, bit about powdery mildew in general. So, what 
what is powdery mildew? Yeah, so powdery mildew is a common term for a lot of, or I shouldn't say a lot, but of, of many um, pathogenic fungi. These are, you know, fungus that attack the plant as a pathogen, meaning it, it will, you know, sort of maybe act as a parasite, maybe just uh, wants to take advantage of the plant to spread its spores so that the fungus can live another generation. Uh, but powdery mildew is, is one of these pathogenic fungi. Um, and it's been found on all sorts of different crops, you know, of course, cannabis, of course, it's cousin hops. Um, it's a problem in the wine industry. It's a problem uh, anywhere where you have fluctuating humidity during the growth cycle of, of any crop. Um, <clears throat> and specifically, you know, at least in, in terms of our research on this, we are referring to the specific um, fungus Golovinomyces ambrosiae. Um, which is what we found on our plants. Um, and, and we did some genetic sequencing and found that it, it matches the, the, you know, general term of powdery mildew found in Kentucky and Ohio and Oregon. Um, so it is a, a, just a general, uh, fungus that attacks crops as they grow. And, uh, I just want to clarify too, that when you, when you see PM on, you know, different plants that's not necessarily uh, able to cross all plant species. So we're not going to necessarily see uh, the powdery mildew that we may find on our squash as is the same species that's going to be infecting our cannabis. Um, just something I wanted to point out for listeners. Yeah, um, that, that's absolutely correct. And uh, since it is a catch-all, we know that there's multiple species that infect cannabis. Is it necessary, really, from a grower perspective to actually identify the species? Or can we treat these all fairly you know, synonymously in terms of our, um, our approach to treatment? You know, we, uh, th that's a great question, and I don't have a, a particularly solid answer for that. No, I think some more research needs to go into this. Um, however, we, we, we do know that the species we identified here in Washington is problematic in Oregon, Kentucky, and, and uh, Ohio. Um, <clears throat> but that, that doesn't mean that, that there are others in those locales that, that are, you know, other species of, of powdery mildew that might be um, inhibiting crop growth. And, and you know, we, we haven't um, done these sort of artificial inoculations of these other powdery mildew species, um, mostly because of uh, sort of the biohazard that that poses, um, bring that into a cannabis facility. Sure. And you, you touched a little bit on, f uh, humidity fluctuation. What conditions lead to, you know, higher spore pressure and actual infection of the leaf tissue? Yeah. So things that, that, you know, that where the, the, the fungus likes to produce more spores and, and sort of rapidly take over a population are where you have, you know, larger fluctuations, uh, in, humidity doesn't matter if it's you know through the day period or through the night period or in between the two but it's generally when there's this swing you know say you're getting up above 60 to 70 percent uh, relative humidity and then dropping down to you know say below 40. Um, so what that allows is for the, the spores to be spread when the humidity is low um, and when that humidity comes back up the, the fungus can then um, begin to grow on wherever those spores landed. Uh, I think some, some simple ways for people to get around this is just to have a stable um, humidity in their, their grow environment. Um, you know, what we've seen, and you know, this is a 
sample size of one, but at our facility, when we when we kept things, you know, in the between 50 and 60, we we saw a rather large reduction in powdery mildew. Um, so it's it's really that swing that allows the spores to spread, and then the, the increase that then allows the, the the fungus to flourish. Yeah, I, I will comment just anecdotally. Uh, whenever growing giant pumpkins for years, I noticed whenever I had a uh, you know, a, a really heavy rainy day followed by a super sunny day. Um, that was sort of that trigger. Those, those big swings was when I would see powdery mildew start to appear in our, in my garden, uh, outdoors. And it obviously it's something we can't control outdoors, but, um, indoors, that's a big, that's a big, uh, a big thing to control in terms of the environment. And, uh, I guess that leads into genetics then. So, what was your experimental design and how, how, how did you discover what genetics to really start your project with? Yeah, this was sort of a, a, a circumstance of, of luck. Um, we, we, at, at Dewey, we have a, a very nice plant research facility um, and we have these really old growth chambers that they sort of look like uh, commercial refrigerators from like the 60s, just these big monster units um, they, they do a good job of regulating light and temperature, but they, they sort of suck with humidity. They don't exchange a lot of air with, uh, the external environment. Um, and so we, we were just housing some of the genetics that we were working on. Um, you know, we, we, we had some, um, I don't know, a couple dozen different varieties and it was in our early days. We were leaving these, these chamber doors closed. Humidity was getting well up into the eighties. When the lights were off and the lights turned on, it dried out quite a bit. Um, and we noticed one of our varieties, this, this PMW 39, um, which commercially we call rain dance, um, was powdery mildew was not growing on it. Um, so our, our breeder, Paul, sort of said, Hey, I think, I think we might have a resistant variety. Um, so, so what he did was, was he took this PMW 39, uh, very resistant. He crossed it with uh, this jumping jack variety that was very susceptible or, you know, on the, on the higher end of susceptibility um, and, and made a breeding cross. Um, you know, some other background on, on PNW39 and jumping jack. PNW39, while it was susceptible, is a very low yielder commercially. Um, its, its THC content is generally sub 20%. So it's not really a commercially appealing variety for farmers. Um, on the flip side, Jumping Jack is a very high yielder. It regularly produces flour that tests above 28% THC. Um, and that's, that's you know, sort of the, the farmer's dream. However, it succumbed to powdery mildew uh, whenever it came into contact with it. Um, so, so what Paul did was he crossed these two. Um, he, he raised, I think it was just, just shy of 100 of those progeny, those children. Um, <clears throat> And then we took those children and put them into that, that swampy, humid growth chamber that we have. Um, and we started scoring for powdery mildew resistance. Um, and what we saw, and this is sort of jumping back into, you know, high school biology with Gregor Mendel, um, was a, a segregation pattern of one to two to one, um, which is j just classic Mendelian segregation, as it's called, right? Think, think back to Punnett squares. Um, <clears throat> Can, where, you, can you elaborate oh, on that for those of us that <laughs> may, may not have yeah, taken these yeah, courses so, so or really remember all of the stuff? I mean, I took a little bit on Mendel, but I 
promptly forgotten most of it. So yeah, yeah. So Greg Gregor Mendel was a I believe a Belgian monk in the late 1800s who was breeding peas, and what what he saw was you know oh, I cross a green with a yellow, and some of those kids are green, some of those kids are yellow. Um, <clears throat> And he did it with, with color and with wrinkle, wrinkled peas. Um, but it, it pretty much breaks down to for every gene in a genome, there are two copies of it. Um, and in some cases, the genes are dominant. And in some cases, they're recessive. And it's, it's possible for any, any two copies to one be dominant and one be recessive. Um, and so when you, you make a cross, let's say you have a parent that is dominant-dominant with something that is recessive-recessive, everything, all of those progeny are going to be what we call heterozygous, meaning it has a dominant allele and also has the recessive allele. Um, however, when you're dealing with things that are heterozygous, um, when you go to make additional crosses, say with something that's completely recessive or, or something that's in, completely dominant, you, you start to get different ratios of those, those children. So what we witnessed was just sort of a, a classic example of a gene segregating in a dominant recessive fashion. Um, that, that sort of clarifies things. Yeah, that brings back some, <laughs> some memories there. Yeah, that, that does make sense. So basically things played out the way you would expect them to um, from, the, from your, your crosses. And then, uh, so you took those crosses, and what did that uh, what did that research show you? Um, so what that showed us was that, um, well, just because the the pattern of the progeny just gave us okay, there is a single dominant R gene, uh, so that that sort of confers what we call vertical resistance um, to to the the pathogen that we're working with. Um, and this is this is something that's been found in you know it, it's pretty common in domesticated crops that that you find this single dominant re resistance gene. Um, and so so that that sort of you know Paul looked at the data and said okay we we should do some sequencing here um, because we we can find a, a marker that will associate with this this dominant um, powdery mildew resistant gene. So, so basically what you're saying is this gave you the confidence that you could actually find a particular marker based on the cross that you did. Is that essentially yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Okay. Yep. Uh, so you, you discovered this marker, um, which is essentially what, what the, the paper is about. Um, what, uh, what does the research show you? Um, but when you guys use the word resistance, for example, in the paper, um, what does that actually mean? Like, let's just say visually, um, and then how do you, I know you talked about this in the paper, but how do you show that this plant is indeed resistant? Yeah. So, um, you know, sort of to identify powdery mildew on, on a, on a crop, you know, it, it's, has these white little hairs that grow all over the, uh, the leaves, it sort of looks like you took a powder, uh, powdered sugar shaker and just put them all over the leaves. That's how you can identify it once it's already started to, to uh, colonize its host. Um, so, yeah, visually, we, we just had this, this set of, of children from, from our breeding cross. And, you know, almost every other one had powdery mildew growing on it or had 
no powdery mildew. It was, it was, you know, um, it was just leaves. There was, there was none of that powdery, powdered sugar on it. So what we did was, you know, we, we, we took some of that, that, the powdery mildew off. We, we examined it under a, a microscope. Um, and that's sort of the classic way of identifying a, a pathogen is to look at it under the microscope. You know, you go back and reference various textbooks or, or resources. Um, and, and so you identify the spores and you identify, um, the the condium is, is sort of the, the scientific word, but sort of um, the 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 legs growing off the off of the spores, um, which is sort of how the the, the fungus grows. Um, <clears throat> and you know, we then took a next a step further. We we took this isolated powdery mildew at this point, and we did a quick PCR test and. and um, and was able to confirm that it was the this specific um, species of powdery mildew. And then basically, uh, all of the plants that had uh, that weren't weren't showing any powdery mildew all had contained that marker, and the ones that did have uh, PM did not contain that marker. Yeah. So so this is where we we, we went and did some. Um, it's called a SNF probe. Um, it SNP FNP short, um, sorry, single nucleotide polymorphism. If you've ever taken a 23andMe or Ancestry uh, DNA test, your your DNA was run on a SNP chip. Um, and so what this does is it identifies single mutations throughout the entire genome. So there are cannabis-specific SNP chips, and, and we worked with Lighthouse Genomics out of uh, Canada. For, for this specific project. And so we ran DNA samples from all of these children in addition to the parents um, and just looked for mutations throughout the population. Um, and so what we saw with, you know, I think there was 40,000 markers that were run, but on one of the markers we saw, okay, in the parent, um, in, 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 in PNW39, the resistant parent, there was this uh, mutation at this specific marker in jumping jack, the resistant, or I'm sorry, the, the susceptible parent, there was a different mutation at that, that marker. And then we saw that the, the children split into three groups um, where they had the profile that matched the resistant parent, the profile that matched the, the susceptible parent, and then things in, in between that had, and this goes back to those alleles, each copy, where they had one of each of, of the mutation at that, that uh, genetic marker. Um, and so then we, we, we took that data, we looked back at sort of our, our phenotyping data, our, what we saw with our eyes, um, and we were able to determine that, okay, this is a, a dominant trait, meaning that it, you know, it, it's either dominant or recessive. It's, if it's dominant, it's going to show um, in the presence of, of the recessive. Um, <clears throat> And so we saw this pattern where, where some of the progeny went uh, clustered with, with the resistant parent that had the same, same mutation profile at that SNP. We saw things in the, that had in the middle and then things that went with the susceptible. So was this a spectrum of resistance that you saw based on how much of that original so with, with, PNW marker was there? With this particular population, we did not see a range of um, resistance. Um, just sort of, 
indicating that this particular marker um, is infers strong resistance. That, that, I'm not going to say that's going to be the case for every powdery, powdery mildew resistance marker that might be out there. Um, right? This is just PM1. There's, you know, our, our, our geneticists believe there's, there's probably five or six in cannabis, um, and those, those remain to be found. Um, however, with, with PM1, if, if you have the, the correct mutation in that spot, what we saw is that you have full resistance to this strain of powdery mildew. So what you're saying is there could be down the road other species or strains of PM that could still inf potentially infect a plant with this, with this marker, but what you saw in your experiment was essentially full immunity um, in your growth chambers. Yes, that, that, that's correct. Um, I, th I think it's, it's very likely that there are other powdery mildew uh, strains out there or species that could infect a, a, a plant that is resistant to this, the, the powdery mildew species that we were working with. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and uh, so what kind of conclusions can we draw? So what, like, what's the next logical step in regards to this research and advanc advancement? So obviously for you guys, um, I would assume now you're doing breeding projects where you're going to check for that marker as you breed more of, you know, progeny from these, uh, this, these, this plant line, um, creating, you know, varietals then that I assume you would, you would then take to market or potentially sell down the road. What's the, what's the game plan there? And, and then how can other growers outside of your company use this research or companies to further advance our overall knowledge in cannabis? Yeah. So, so, so some of the steps that we've taken, uh, the next steps we've taken with, with this project is of course, we want this in all of our varieties that we put into our commercial brand that we, we then sell to other farmers as well. Um, so at, the, at this time, I believe we have just about a dozen varieties that we have introduced uh, this powdery mildew resistance into, um, and those are available uh, for, for Washington growers. Um, and so the, the other step that we're taking is we want to find these other PM genes, right? It's, it's sort of a dream that we would, could, uh, sorry, PM resistance genes, PM2, 3, 4, 5, if there's that many, um, and, and start to stack these resistance genes into a variety. So like you mentioned earlier, right, is it possible for a, a farmer to have one of these, these varieties and grow them and still have powdery mildew resistance. Um, if, if we can get multiple resistance genes stacked into a single variety, it just lowers the chance that powdery mildew can infect the plant no matter where it's grown, no matter what species of, of powdery mildew it's, it's subject to. And uh, that just gets me thinking, do you have in line to do any research regarding botrytis? I know that's a, another major one that uh, a lot of cannabis growers battle, um, even more so than PM. Is there yeah. a potential there, I guess? Um, that's, that's definitely not a focus of ours. You know, I think, unfortunately, I mean, it is, it is definitely... Uh, we are fortunate to be in this situation in general, but, you know, for, for the sake of Botrytis, where we are, we're in eastern Washington, uh, Botrytis isn't as big of a threat uh, to cannabis out here. It's a bit drier um, than, say, the Willamette Valley of Oregon or, you know, anywhere in western Washington or even, you know, Humboldt, you know, the, the Emerald Triangle in, in uh, California, you're right, as, as they get fall rains, 
that increases the, the pressure of botrytis. Uh, so for us in eastern Washington, it's not as big of a problem. And on the other side of that, we don't want to intentionally bring botrytis into our facility. Um, so we are um, working with a few folks that, that may or may not have botrytis resistance. They think they do. Um, so we, we work with folks on, on sort of trying to find this marker. Um, and then sort of, you know, jumping back to your question on, you know, how can other farmers uh, make use of this today? Um, you know, what we did was develop a, a, a PCR assay, um, and we, we provide the, the primers for that. So, you know, of course, you might need a molecular biologist on your team to sort of run this assay, but, you know, we did provide the framework for anybody to be testing for this at their facility if they have the right tools and, and staff. So I realize there's some limitations with state, uh, you know, boundaries and such, but if you were a Washington farmer, for example, um, could they send a sample to you to test for that marker? Is that something, a service that you guys offer? You know, that's not a service that we offer, although if, if there's any interested listeners out there, you know, we, we are very happy to work with folks on, on ensuring that consumers are getting a, a safer product um, in the end. And, uh, but are you also, and again, this is something I haven't looked up yet. Um, do you guys offer actual plants then um, for sale that contain that marker? Yeah, we, we, we do. We, we, we can only work within the confines of Washington State at the moment. Um, but we, we are very happy to work with, with folks on licensing our varieties. You know, this past growth season, we, we worked with a, a large group in central Washington uh, getting them some of our varieties, um, and th this is what this is what we do. You know, we 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 license plant varieties to to interested farmers. Great, and that kind of just brings me to a couple more PM questions, uh, if that's okay. Um, one that comes to mind is: Have you seen any research that actually shows uh, any health risks associated with uh, consuming or combusting? cannabis leaf that has some, you know, level of, of powdery mildew on it. I wasn't able to find anything online. I was just curious if you, uh, if you had any, anything on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm unaware of any research that, that shows that powdery mildew consumption or inhalation is dangerous to one's health. Um, you know, it, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, um, but I think it's, it's, it's reasonable to think that it could elicit an immune response. You know, sometimes that could, that could be in the form of asthma or it could be a, you know, uh, allergic reaction um, to, to the respiratory tract. Um, but I think what's, what's more important here is that when powdery mildew is on plants, it reduces the vigor of the plant, ultimately impacting yield, and in the case of cannabis, impacting potency. And that's not something that farmers want to have to deal with. So oftentimes they will treat their plants with damaging fungicides um, and spray that on the plants, and that is that's my primary concern, and, and that that's a huge poses a huge risk to the, the health and safety of cannabis consumers. Is are they inhaling combusted fungicides and pesticides? Um, and that that's really our goal with this is to just reduce depend reduce dependence on um, fungicides that that are damaging to human health. Absolutely. Um, and I just want to make clear, I'm not condoning the use of like, or the sale or, or, uh, 
smoking or, or consumption of plants that have PM on them, I would assume that any mold spores in general are probably things we want to keep out of our body. Um, but I was just curious if you'd actually found any research. And then in regards to the fungicides, it's an unfortunate reality that some people are still using things like Eagle 20, um, you know, systemic um, fungicides and pesticides. So um, I think that's a wonderful point that you bring up there in that regard. Uh, as I understand it, you know, any oil-based or even water itself will kill PM. It just won't keep it from coming back and reinfecting the plant. Um, and, and you've already elicited a stress rep response at that point from the plant. So I assume it's more susceptible even than it was before you killed it. So it's something you're going to be continually fighting. Um, would that be accurate? Yeah, I think I think that's that's accurate. There are there are other strategies out there other than you know innate plant immunity to to powdery mildew, um, but you know it just sort of goes back to you know it, maybe it is an organic oil that that you're spraying on your plants that um, you know is, is keeping the uh, the powdery mildew at bay. However, I mean you are, you're still when you're doing that you are you know adulterating the the end product. You know maybe you know say you're using neem oil. It's, it's pretty widely used in the cannabis industry as a, a safe uh, pesticide. Um, but not everybody reacts well to neem oil. I mean, it is a mixture of, of uh, essential oils, and, and sometimes essential oils can elicit a, a negative immune response in people. Um, so while it is much, much better than using, you know, something as dangerous as Eagle 20, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not going to remove your problem. Um, and, it, and it does adulterate your, your end product. Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, realistically, um, we're not, we don't want to spray anything once the plant starts producing trichomes. So once we get a couple weeks into flower, uh, you're pretty limited in what you are able to spray on a plant. Um, my preference, I'll just throw this out here, uh, would probably be something like Sufoil X or mineral oil based. Um, even though it's petroleum-based, uh, th there's a lot more research to support that these products are safer and they don't leave a residue on the leaf tissue, uh, more so even than neem. But um, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. The less we have to spray, not only is that a labor savings, uh, it's, it's keeping us from having to adulterate the plant at all or potentially risk anything being on the leaf surface come harvest time. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, uh, is powdery mildew systemic? And uh, I don't know if that's something you want to address. I can kind of share my thoughts, but I was kind of curious, um, you know, how you would how you would describe the life cycle of this uh, of these set this set of fun fungus. So, sorry, your, your question is: Is it systemic and? What yeah. is the, the general life cycle? Yeah, yeah, that's sort of what uh, what a lot of people are asking regarding this this fungus. Yeah, I would say um, it doesn't. It's only systemic if if the the environment which you're maintaining clones or whatever is is sort of inundated with, with powdery mildew spores. Um, <clears throat> and what 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 is the life cycle? You know, it's. This is a fungus. Um, generally, fung fungi have two phases of their life. They have their their spore producing phase, and they have their sort of fruiting body production phase. Um, so, you know, what what 
how, how this works is, is, you know, spores are introduced to an environment where they can grow and they'll, they'll, they'll start producing. It, it sort of looks like plant roots. Um, you know, the, these hyphae, um, as they're called through whatever that, that medium is. Sometimes it's soil. Sometimes it's something that's particularly carbohydrate rich, like say a rotting apple, um, <clears throat> or an apple. It's, it's rotting because the fungus is eating all the sugar. Um, and, and once it gets to a point where the, the hyphae or this, you know, the, the, the fungus equivalent to roots is strong enough, it will start to produce its fruiting bodies. So in the case of mushrooms, right, it's, it's the mushroom. It comes out of the hyphae, uh, has this, this fruiting head. Um, and then that fruiting head is actually what then produces the spores for the next cycle. Um, and, and so, you know, you'll, you'll see that, um, sort of as, as, you know, mushrooms that have gills. Um, underneath, right, sort of your, your typical cremini or, or um, you know, various mushrooms, um, they'll, they'll drop those spores out of those gills and then they get spread by the wind or by animals or insects um, and, and the life cycle continues. So in the, in the case of cannabis and powdery mildew, um, yeah, those spores can, can be dormant for quite some time and when the conditions are ripe, they, they can take over a population. So I wouldn't say it's, it's systemic, right? If you take a clone and bring it to a clean environment, um, you know, there's a, a moderate risk that, that that plant could then become inundated with powdery mildew, but only in the right conditions. So I think, you know, having a clean facility, especially where you do your cloning, is, is very important um, in not passing powdery mildew on um, from generation to generation. Yeah, I was just gonna. I mean, you essentially uh, better explain <laughs> my thoughts on it. I guess uh, it, it's not systemic, but uh, it can act in ways that are similar to something that would be systemic in the sense that uh, the spores are dormant; they may not be visually present um, to the naked eye. So, when you are cloning, you can, while it's not living inside the the leaf tissue, the 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 uh, fungus itself does penetrate the leaf tissue. And so um, you just want to be uh, very careful when you are cloning, if you are cloning a plant that's had PM uh, to really do a good job of uh, spraying or, or treating it prior to cloning. And then even after cloning, just to make sure that you're not, uh, you know, creating a situation where you're going to have spore pressure down the road. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, awesome. Hey, I, I really appreciate you taking the time today to explain this research. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to share regarding uh, this paper, Dewey Scientific, uh, things that you guys have going on down the road um, or, or future research? Yeah, you know, f future research, you know, I did mention that, that we're on the press or we're looking for other powdery mildew genes that we, we do think we have a couple other in, in hand right now. Um, we're awaiting sequencing confirmation to just to see that. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I think my big takeaway here is, is and I, I didn't even really touch on this, but you know, none of this would have been possible if it weren't for uh, sort of the collaborative um, framework that, that we had with Oregon CBD. You know, I think uh, because of, of cannabis's history, people are are a little hesitant to work with others. Um, but look, none of this would have been possible without them. You know, we, we had the, the germplasm, we had some of the, the 
key competencies to, to getting here. And then Oregon CBD was able to complement us in, in ways that, you know, we couldn't do in-house. And I think this is just a testament to, you know, what's possible when, when folks in the cannabis community uh, work together. You know, we, we, we can achieve great things. Um, and, you know, we, we're, you know, I'm a huge proponent of, of collaboration and, and sort of, you know, helping other people um, improve their practice. And, and you know, ho hopefully that leads to, some more really cool discoveries like like what we found with uh, Oregon CBD. Awesome, yeah, I really appreciate uh, you know both your companies doing this work and furthering you know advancing our knowledge on the subject and then sharing that publicly and and you taking the time today to come on the podcast. Um, I really appreciate it. And again, just for folks interested, we'll have this available on the pod. We'll have a link right on the podcast page. Um, I highly suggest people check it out. Um, I just want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Todd. Happy to be here. Um, big fan of the show. <laughs> All e right. e even before you asked me to come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. That was Dr. Jordan Zager, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. I'll post pertinent links on the podcast page at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on the Learn tab and then Podcast. If you're looking for consulting, soils or soil amendments, or fabric beds or blue mats for your facility or garden, please give us a call or hit us up through our website contact page or tad at kisorganics.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>